0: All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is our uh, welcome to our sixth week sixth week of apologetics. Um, last week we uh, answered um, two main questions: uh, What was you know? Did the New Testament writers claim that their writings are eyewitness testimony, and as well, did the New Testament writers give any details that would show that um, their writings were actually eyewitness testimony? So today we're going to talk about what are some of the top reasons how we can trust the New Testament writers And know they were telling the truth. But before we do that, I'd like to open up in a word of prayer Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord We thank you for this time together Lord, we just pray for everyone here We pray for those who cannot be with us, Lord uh, Due to sickness or illness or anything of that nature, Lord Please just uh, bless them and be with them and comfort them, Lord Uh, Please just bless our time together Uh, Help us to see the truth in your word, Lord. Help us to better understand uh, your word and how we can know it's true. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As my thing times out. So as we got our kids these, this is an aside. I kind of had this random thought today. Um, So uh, we got our kids these puzzles for... um, Valentine's Day one of them's of uh, Grogu if you know like the Mandalorian like it's Baby Yoda is what people call it But I was sitting there I was doing a puzzle with uh, My son Jonah where he was like talking about like well, how do you how are you able to do it? Because it's like this if you know what Thomas Kincaid is he like he painted a picture of like Baby Yoda like in this like Greenscape field with these huts and stuff and so there's a lot of similar colors and Things like that. So I was just talking, to, I was telling him, I was like, well, you got to find the parts that you can like identify and put the pieces together. And then you can see how it all connects in together. And that's kind of how we we look at apologetics, right? Because there's so many things that contribute to what you would call your worldview or understanding of the world. And, you know, we talked a little bit, we talked a little bit, you know, about truth, the nature of the universe, you know, the resurrection, all these things. Um, but how they fit together in a cohesive set like a puzzle, right? You identify the big groups, and then you can start to see how things connect together. Now when you just have it all sitting out in front of you at first, you don't necessarily realize what doesn't go. What does not match? You could probably take some pieces from another puzzle that's similar and put it in there, and it, but it, it, you wouldn't realize it. It's not until you start putting, painting, putting the pieces together and realizing these things that you can discover, and realize, okay, well, here's this, and this is how this connects to this. And then if you had those pieces that weren't part of the, the puzzle, that were inconsistent, you could go, well, this doesn't belong, because it doesn't, it doesn't fit. And so that's kind of how we, when we look at this, we look at apologetics. It's kind of multidisciplined. It's It's a bunch of different pieces of the same puzzle, the same worldview. Um, and all of them are interlocking and connecting with each other, and they're all mutually supporting. And they're what would you call internally consistent? And when things aren't internally consistent, um, and this this is part of the problem with other opposing views is that they're not internally consistent. They'll claim something over here, you know, they'll have certain puzzle pieces here, but then they'll have pieces of another puzzle piece over here and another one over here, and they'll kind of smash them together, and they don't they don't work. They're not consistent. Um, so I just it was just kind of a thought I had that you know that's that's how all this works together. It all provides for what you would call the, the Christian worldview, and all of them are mutually supporting towards the truths of the gospel and of um, of our faith. So, um, but so last week we talked about, uh, you know, how we can know that it was wit- eyewitness testimony. What are some facts about uh, that are given that show that it's eyewitness testimony? And today we're going to talk about some of the top reasons why we know we can trust it. Again, kind of just briefly cap, recapping last week. Um, we said Peter, Paul, and John all claim to be direct eyewitnesses, and we went through some verses that looked at that. Uh, to include 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3-8, which is one of the most profound eyewitness testimonies where he, where Paul talks about appearing to the, the, the apostles and to the 500. Um, so, now, in addition to this, we, we have uh, other writers from the New Testament, Luke, and Hebrews, speaking directly and saying they had access to eyewitnesses. Uh, then we also we looked at, we said, well, here's how they're, claim- they're directly claiming to be eyewitnesses. Well, can they back up their claims? And the answer is yes. And we looked at Luke's account uh, in the last 16 chapters of Acts that provided 85 facts that were confirmed by historical and archaeological research that show Luke was an eyewitness, things that he couldn't have known unless he was at that place and at that time. John's Gospel too uh, identified 59 facts that show that he was an eyewitness. Um, so just by looking at the narratives of John and Luke, we identified over 140 authentic historical eyewitness details. So in addition to these details that show the writers were eyewitnesses and had direct eyewitness, uh, access to eyewitnesses and that they are claiming to be eyewitnesses, we're going to talk about some of the ways that we can we can trust the words that they're saying. So this section is going to kind of primarily look at the text itself and how we can kind of critically assess it for what you might call its historicity or how we can know it's historical. So I'm going to just gonna I kind of just structure this as just a list that we're going to go through. And I couldn't, I, I wanted to include, there was like three or four more that I was going to include, but I figured it would be too long. And then there's, there's even more on top of that. Um, so these were just kind of the, the big ones that, that I think really helped support the fact that the New Testament writers are telling the truth. Okay. Now, one of the ways historians can tell if an author is telling the truth is a principle called the principle of embarrassment. Okay. The principle assumes that any detail embarrassing to the author is probably true. And the reason for this is because the tendency of most authors is to leave out anything that makes them look bad. Think about it, you're writing, um, you're, you're making up a story that might be remotely based on some thing that happened in the past, you're probably going to leave out any embarrassing details about yourself. So, if you're a New Testament writer and you're making up a story, would you include the embarrassing details that make you look bad? Wouldn't you want to make yourself look as good as you, um, as good as you could making up a story? Especially if you're claiming this story to the world and trying to establish a, a new religion, if you will. So you wouldn't, if you wouldn't include those if you were actually conveying historical truth, if these things actually happened. So we're going to go through, look at a couple of these embarrassing details that are that are in the Gospels. So the disciples appear dim-witted in numerous uh, numerous times and fail to understand what Jesus is saying, as seen in Mark nine thirty-two, Luke eighteen thirty-four, and John twelve sixteen. In fact, this this is even a theme that some scholars will like talk about, like you know that Mark has of the apostles like just not getting it of Jesus telling them and them just not. Not seeing and not understanding. Also, they appear unca- the apostles appear uncaring. They fall asleep on Jesus twice when Jesus is in great distress and, the, and he asks them to pray with him. Jesus in a time, is in his time of greatest need and they fail him and they just fall asleep on him. This is, can be, you can go look it up in Mark 14, 32 to 41. Also, they are uncaring when they make no attempt to bury Jesus leaving a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, to complete the task. A member of the very council that sentenced Jesus to death. Other embarrassing details, they're rebuked by Jesus and by others. Peter is called directly Satan by Jesus in Mark 8.33 and Matthew 16.23. Paul, in his writings, rebuke Peter for writing about wrong theology. Paul says in Galatians 2.11, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. And keep in mind, Peter is a pillar of the early church. And Paul is including in Scripture that he was wrong. And this was talking about Galatians and Paul saying that people needed to follow certain things of the Jewish, uh, the previous Jewish Jewish heritage. And that's what Paul is addressing with Peter. Um, Also, They appear to be cowards in the text. All the disciples but one hid when Jesus goes to the cross. Peter even denies Jesus three times, as we see in Matthew 26, 33 to 35. After explicitly promising he would never do so. So if if you're familiar with it, Peter, oh, I would never never deny you. And Jesus says, you'll deny me three times before before the rooster crows. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and he goes in that night, and there's a little slave girl that's following him around and saying, Oh, I think that's, weren't you with him? No, 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 no. He says it three times, and the rooster crows. Meanwhile, as the men were hiding for fear of the Jews, the brave women are the ones who stand up by Jesus and are the first, during the crucifixion, and are the first to discover the empty tomb. They're also shown as doubters. Despite being taught several times that Jesus would raise from the dead, as we see in John 2:18 to 22, John 3:14 to 18, Matthew 12:39 to 41, Matthew 17:9, and even Matthew 17:22 to23, the disciples are doubtful when they hear of the resurrection. Some are even doubtful like doubting Thomas after they see the risen Lord, as we see in Matthew 28:17. Jesus is standing before Thomas, and he still doesn't believe it, and he needs to put his fingers in his, in his side. Why, wouldn't, why would the New Testament writers include all these details if they were making the story up? Well, we all know they wouldn't have. If they were making the story up, they would have left out their, their ineptness, their cowardice, the rebukes, the three denials, and the theological problem that Paul had with Peter. If they were making it up, they would have depicted themselves as bold believers who stood by Jesus through it all and would have said that they boldly approached the empty tomb and that it was the men and not the women who did so while the men were hiding in cowardice. So point number two, and this kind of draws on the same idea of the principle of embarrassment. The New Testament writers include embarrassing details about Jesus himself. Okay, the New Testament writers are also honest about Jesus. Not only do they record self-incriminating details about themselves, they also record embarrassing details about their leader, Jesus, that seem to place him in a bad light at first glance. Again, the idea pulls on the historical principle of embarrassment. Jesus, it says in Mark 3.21 and 3.31, Jesus is called out of his mind by his mother, and his brother, his own family, who come to seize him in order to take him home. In John 7, 5, Jesus is not believed by his own brothers. In John 7, 12, Jesus is thought to be a deceiver by some in the crowd. In John 6, Jesus gives a hard teaching about him being the bread of life and that you must eat of his body and drink of his blood in order to have life in you. We're all familiar with this. He's doing the wilderness... He's doing a feeding of the 5,000 and these people are there and he starts to give this, this proclamation about him being the bread of life. And, and right after all this, as we see subsequently in John 6, 66, we're told that many of his disciples stopped following him, never to return. In John 8, 30 to 31, Jesus turns off Jews who believed in him to the point that they were wanting to stone him in verse 59. Jesus is called a drunkard in Matthew eleven nineteen. He is called demon possessed by the teachers of the law in Mark three twenty two, and by the crowds in John seven twenty. He's called a madman in John ten twenty. Jesus has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, an event that had that had the potential of being perceived as a sexual advance, in Luke seven thirty six to thirty nine. Jesus is crucified by Jews and Romans, despite the fact that according to Deuteronomy 21-23, anyone who is hung in a tree is under God's curse. This is certainly not a list of events and qualities that the New Testament writers would choose if they were trying to depict Jesus as the perfect, sinless God-man. They wouldn't have included these if they were trying to paint Jesus if they were making up a story to paint Jesus as some kind of founder of some new religion, you know, something like, a, like you hear about like a, the stories of Buddhas, like, you know, or, you know, other religious stories from other places where they, we, the, the texts do lift up Jesus, but the, oftentimes the other ones, they don't include the embarrassing details because they're often fabricated. But these, the gospels are true. And the best explanation of these embarrassing details is that they actually happened, and the New Testament writers wanted to include the truth because they thought that the truth was important. So number three, the New Testament writers left in demanding sayings of Jesus. Okay. If the New Testament writers were making up a story, they certainly didn't make up a story that made their lives easier for them. Jesus had some very demanding standards the sermon on the mount even if we just look there for example does not seem to be a human invention matthew 5:28 jesus says i tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and has al- he has already committed adultery with her in his heart and matthew 5:32 jesus says i tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Hard teaching. In Matthew five thirty-nine to 42, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Matthew 5, 44 to 45, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven Where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, your heart also will be. Matthew seven, one to two, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. All of these commands are impossible for human beings to keep and seem to go against the very natural, or what the world would say, natural best interests of the man who wrote them down. They certainly run, co- they certainly run contrary... Sorry, my screen just went out. <laughs> Sorry. And they certainly run contrary to the desires of many today, who want a religion of spirituality that has no moral demand, and consider, so we need to consider the implications of these demands. So, if thinking about sin, thinking about a sin is sinful, then everyone, including the New Testament writers, is guilty. To set such stringent standards for divorce or remarriage does not appear to be an earthly interest of the men recording the saying. Remember, because Jesus says from the hardness of your hearts, that's why Moses allowed you to um, get a divorce, right? Because that was their hardness of hearts. But Jesus is saying something counter to it. To to not resist the insults of an evil person is to resist our basic human instinct. It also sets, sets up an inconvenient standard of behavior for the apostles who happened to be at that time under persecution. Why would somebody under persecution, unless those were actual sayings of Jesus, why would somebody under persecution write down to turn the other cheek? To pray for our enemies goes well beyond any ethic ever uttered and commands kindness where enmity is natural. To accumulate financial wealth contradicts our deepest desires for temporal security. To be perfect, as I said before, is unobtainable for fallible humans. To not judge unless your own life is in order counts our natural tendency to point out, counts against our natural tendency to point out our faults that we see in others. So these commands are clearly not the commands of people who are making something up because if they did, they would write commands that they could keep. They wouldn't write commands to which they had no hope of possibly ever keeping. Number four, the New Testament writers include events related to the resurrection that that they would have not invented. So in addition to the inclusion of embarrassing details regarding themselves and Jesus, the New Testament writers record events related to the resurrection that they would have not invented if they had invented the story. So the first one is the, the, the burial of Jesus. The New Testament writers record that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, I mentioned this previously, a member of the Sanhedrin, who was the Jew, the Sanhedrin being the Jewish ruling council that put to death Jesus for blasphemy. This is not an event the New Testament writers would have or could have made up. Consider the bitterness of some Christians that they had against the, the Jewish authorities. Why would, why, if you were making a story up, why would you put a member of the Sanhedrin in a favorable light? Also, if you were making it up, why would they put Jesus in the tomb of a Jewish authority? For if the story of Jesus' burial by Joseph had been made up, if it had been fraudulent, it could have been exposed as, as such by the Jewish enemies of Christianity. However, the Jews never denied this story of Joseph of Arimathea coming and taking Jesus and burying him, and no alternative burial story has ever been given. So, if you're making it up, it would not behoove you to write that somebody from the Jewish Sanhedrin who just put Jesus to death is the same per- is one of the people who buried him. So, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. This is the next point underneath this one. So, the first. All four Gospels say women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the first to learn of the resurrection. One of these women, Mary Magdalene, we are told was demon-possessed at one time. This would never be inserted into a made-up story, especially one from that time. Not only would a once demon-possessed woman make, or even a demon-possessed person in general, would make a questionable witness. But women in general in that culture and time were not considered reliable witnesses. In fact, in that time, a woman's testimony carried no weight in a court of law. Again, this is the culture. This is not a biblical command. This is just the nature of the culture at the time. So if you're making up a resurrection story in the first century, would you have made up the story that it was the women who came and saw? That the tomb is empty? And they're the ones that went around proclaiming the tomb is empty? Or would you say, well, it was the male disciples were the ones that discovered the empty tomb? Including women, especially previously demon-possessed women, would only hurt your attempt to pass the lie off as a truth if you're if you're making up a story. So another Part of the resurrection story that they wouldn't have included would be the conversion of priests. If they were trying to make it up, the conversion of priests, they wouldn't have included it. Luke writes in Acts 6-7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These priests eventually initiated a controversy in the Jerusalem church. During a council meeting in Acts 15.5, we are told that some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees directly, quote, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the, this council was resolved and that's not the point of what we're trying to make here. The point is that Luke would not have included these details if it was fiction. Because everyone w- who... Everyone would have known Luke was a fraud if there was not a significant conversion of Pharisees. If there weren't a bunch of Pharisees and priests converting and Luke said that there was, then they would have called, it, they would have called him out on it. Theodophilus, to whom, Paul, sorry, to whom Luke writes the account, the Pharisees and other first century readers would have easily found out Luke was lying. If, unless... Pharisees actually did convert and priests did convert. After all, if you're trying to pass a lie off as truth, you do not make it easy for your enemies to expose your story. He wouldn't have included these things because people would have known whether or not they converted and they could go ask the priests themselves. So another example of details within the resurrection story that show that that wouldn't have been included if it was made up. Is the Jewish explanation of the empty tomb, as we see in the last chapter of Matthew, in Matthew 28, to 15. It reads, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, and you will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Notice that Matthew makes it clear that the readers already know about the Jewish explanation of the empty tomb because he said the story has been widely circulated to this very day. This means Matthew's readers and the Jews themselves would have known if Matthew was telling the truth. If Matthew was making up the empty tomb, why, why would he give such an easy way to expose his lie? The only plausible explanation is the tomb was in fact empty, and the Jewish enemies of the Christians had been circulating this specific explanation of the empty tomb. An explanation that we kind of talked about last week um, that, that doesn't meet the test, or the test for historicity. And we'll explain further probably next week. And it fails to account for, like I said last week, the over over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Okay, so the next point of why we know we can trust the New Testament writers. Number five. The New Testament writers include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. I talked about this briefly last week, but I think it's important to reiterate this fact. um, Because the New Testament documents cannot have been invented because they contain too many historically confirmed characters. New Testament writers would have would have destroyed their credibility with their contemporary readers by implying real people in a fictional story, especially people of great notoriety and power. Someone would have easily expo- exposed the New Testament for falsely implicating people in events that never occurred. In the New Testament in the New Testament would have known this and would not have included, the, sorry, the writers of the New Testament would have known this and not have included such figures if they were fabricating a story in order to deceive people. So we mentioned that last week. Number six, the New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs and practices, adopting new ones, and did not deny their testimony under persecution, under threat of death, nor in their eventual martyrdom. Okay. The New Testament writers don't just say Jesus performed miracles and rose from the dead. They actually back up that testimony with dramatic action. First, almost overnight, they abandoned many of their long-held sacred beliefs and practices. Among the 1,500-year-old-plus institutions they gave up in order to follow Jesus was the animal sacrifice system. And they replaced it for forever by the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The binding supremacy of the law of Moses, the system that dominated the lives of every Jew. And the New Testament writers are stating it is powerless because of the sinless life of Christ. The Sabbath, which was originally observed on Saturday, they no longer observe it. And even though they believe that they previously would have believed that breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death according to exodus 31:14 they abandon it further than they now worship on not saturday but sunday the day that jesus was resurrected from the dead the other belief that they abandon belief in a conquering messiah so the jews thought the messiah would come as a military and political leader that would over, that would overthrow the chains of their earthly conquerors. However, Jesus was the exact opposite of a conquering Messiah. Rather, he was a sacrificial lamb. And it is not just the New Testament writers that did this. Thousands of Jerusalem Jews, including Pharisees, the keepers of the law, the maintainers of the law, that worked in the temple, the Pharisees and the priests, overtly converted to Christianity, and join the New Testament writers in abandoning these treasured beliefs and practices. J.P. Moreland helps us to understand the magnitude of this: these devout Jews giving up their established institutions. And I'm going to quote something from him. He says, The Jewish people believed that these institutions were entrusted to them by God. They believed that to abandon these institutions would be to risk their own souls being damned to hell after death. Now a rabbi named Jesus appeared from a lower class region. He teaches for three years, gathers a following of lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities, and gets crucified along with 30,000 other Jewish men who were executed during that same time period. But five weeks after he's crucified, over 10,000 Jews are following him and claiming he is the initiator of a new religion. And get this, they're willing to give up or alter all five of the social institutions they have been taught since childhood and have such importance sociologically and theologically. So the only thing that explains this is that something very big was going on. That's J.P. Moreland's quote. So how do you explain these monumental shifts in the New Testament writers if they were making the whole story up? How do you explain how do you explain it if the resurrection did not occur? Second, Not only did they abandon their lifelong held beliefs and practices, but they adopted some radical new ones. As I said before, Sunday, which was a day of work, is now the new day of worship. Baptism is given as a sign that one was a partaker of the new covenant. Circumcision, which was such an important thing that Paul argues against that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised anymore in numerous places in the New Testament, is is of the Old Covenant. It's not necessary anymore. Communion is an act of remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for their sins. Communion is especially inexplicable unless the resurrection is true. Why would Jews make up a practice where they symbolically eat and drink the blood and body of Christ? Something that, going back to that John passage, that people were so detestable and grossed out by because you're not supposed to to drink blood in Deuteronomy. Right? It talks about that in the law. Finally, in addition to abandoning, abandoning long-held sacred institutions and adopting new ones, the New Testament writers suffered persecution and death when they could have saved themselves by recanting. So if they had made up the resurrection story, they sure, certainly would have said so when they were about to crucify Peter, stone James, or behead Paul. But no one recanted. All the disciples were martyred for the faith except for John. And John, who was boiled in oil and didn't die, then exiled to the the island of Patmos. Why would they have suffered persecution and subsequent martyrdom for something that they knew was a lie? And this is what, to me, this is always one of the most key points. No one is willing to die for something that they know is a lie. See, we, people try to argue this away. They'll say, well, we have other martyrs in different faiths, say Islam, for example, but these people are being martyred for things they are told by others are true. Okay, they're told Muhammad said this so many thousands of years ago, and if you do this, you'll gain X, Y, Z. These people, for example, like the, the, the Muslims that were taught, the modern-day martyrs, they're dying for something they themselves did not witness something they could not directly through eyewitness testimony or eyewitness account of them seeing it, determine if it was true or it was not. See, the apostles, however, died for something they witnessed. They were in a unique position to know if the resurrection for which they died, proclaiming, was true or false. If it was false, they would not have allowed themselves to be martyred for a lie. If Jesus did, in fact, not raise from the dead, and even if they were trying to start something for monetary gain, which they gained nothing, the moment they were put under intense persecution on to the point of death, they would have recanted said, nope, I made it up. But they didn't, because it wasn't a lie, because they believed what they saw. They believed the teachings of Jesus. They believed that he said he was going to raise from the dead. They believed that he was the Messiah, that he claimed to be, that he was God. And they went and boldly proclaimed these things onto the point of death. And again, nobody would die in that way for something that they know is a lie. So in summary, as I said, these are just, I gave, what did I give, six? These are just six of the kind of facts that we have out of many more, there's many more, of how we can know to try, that we can trust the New Testament and what's said in the New Testament. We have all these reasons and many others to support the idea that the, the New Testament writers relentlessly stuck to the truth. And why wouldn't they? What would their motivation be to lie? What would their motivation be to embellish or exaggerate anyway? They had nothing to gain except death, a death they could have easily gotten themselves out, and, out of by recanting. So that's all I have for tonight. Is there any questions about I know it's a lot, but to any questions? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can. Uh, I can send this to Deb and she can print it. Yeah, yeah, I can do that for you. Yeah, I'll send that. So the. He. When he returned, it was to the disciples. Now, because the... the, um, If we pull up... I don't know if I... If you look up 1 Corinthians... Paul says it in that 1 Corinthians verse, and I don't think I copied it in here, I don't have my Bible sent in front of me. But I think it was... I think he first appeared to Peter. He says Cephas, if I recall correctly. So, 1 Corinthians five fifteen I believe let me find my note here. Yeah so if somebody if you look at that does it it's first fifteen sorry first Corinthians fifteen three to eight I'm sorry I apologize. Yeah I believe he says that he first appeared to, to Cephas fifteen what? Fifteen three to eight. Does it say does it say it's yeah well see the thing is uh because yeah so I the the thing is is that does does it say that it's does it say there that it's Peter see Cephas it's in the 12 okay so Paul is Paul is tell uh Katie was talking about the road to Emmaus and appearing you know disguising himself to the two disciples um, and then revealing himself. Uh, I don't necessarily know that per se if that's chrono- that chronologically, because sometimes the the way that the New Testament writers list things sometimes isn't necessarily to be chronological at certain points. But I Peter or sorry, Paul here is telling us that it's that he first appeared to Peter. So that that was a question is that revealed Mary Yeah you know and yeah so and there is so part part of what people some critics will pick up on is the uh and if you're really interested William Lane Craig gets into this so some people say, well, there's discrepancy in the account of the empty tomb and how many women were there and, you know, was it one angel, was it two? Um, This is something I didn't get into on here just because of the nature of time, but anytime you have eyewitness testimony, you're going to have some semblance of of, uh, what would be seen as inconsistencies between them just because of the nature of how people observe things. So, like, police officers, if they go and question four or five different people and they have the exact same story, they're going to think that they're colluding together to, to, to make something up. And so, but what we have in the, you know, with the empty tomb and the women and, you know, the, the supposed um, inc- inconsistencies, what we have is a central core seed or theme that, that the tomb was empty, angels appeared to the women and told them that he was resurrected. And the it can be simply accounted for that we're talking that Mark and Luke and we talking to the to different women that were at the tomb at the time and got their perspective of the eyewitness account and so that's really what um, I don't know if that's exactly what you were trying to get at but I know that there's sometimes uh, um, people who are kind of critical of the of the New Testament account will will highlight that but actually what it does is it just confirms the base facts that the tomb was empty, and that he appeared to the women? And I so. First Corinthians that
1: Paul said, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third third day in accordance
0: with the Scriptures, and then." And then he appeared yeah the most important thing yeah. was that the gospel and yeah that's yeah what paul is trying
1: to save
0: him. yeah the other stuff is yeah yeah, yeah and that's that's what so what was said was that in that in that first corinthians passage what's what paul says is of first importance is is the gospel that he was died he was buried he was raised all those things and then he goes into who he revealed himself to um but like even hypothetically, like if we didn't know the exact order of how who would Jesus appear to, because we have a tendency to kind of do that, right? Like, Jesus appeared to me. Let me look at my phone. It's 1215 on February whatever and, you know, that kind of thing. As opposed to like, oh, Jesus appeared to me and he appeared, you know. So it's, we have this, it's easy for us, you know, to build hard timelines with something of that nature. Whereas, you know, okay, he appeared to you, he appeared to me. It was midday for me uh, three days ago. What, you know, that kind of thing. And well, was it, so there's, but the fact is, is that he appeared to those people and he gave, he gives their names. You know, they give their names and that's important because if they have their names, they could easily go and talk to these people and say, hey, well, did Jesus appear to you? Yeah. So sometimes we kind of import, our modern ideas where we have, you know, email timestamps and all these kinds of things to to track times. Um, But the the point is, is that he appeared to all those people. And so even if you want to sit there and go, well, it says here it appeared to this person first and this person over here, you're not sticking to the the core point is that he appeared to them. That's what mattered. It doesn't matter what the order was. The fact is, is that he appeared to these people and you have to if you're going to deny it, you have to account for how he appeared to these named people as well as the other 500 people that uh, he appeared to. So yes, thank you for the question. Okay, I because I, sometimes when people ask questions, it's because it's leading into... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So the comment was is that we're all sinners. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's so like the other thing is too talking about those details wouldn't be included, right? Because like, the gospel is the the beginning of the gospel is like are complete ineptists to do to to do anything. Right? All the other religions of the world, like even Buddhism that like tries to like act like they're like, it's all about like, well you have to deny yourself, right? So it's still like this like inverted pride, like, well I deny myself, do you, you know, you know, so it's it's still the person, it's still the the you know, you doing something as opposed to the gospel and what it teaches. And that it's not a very you know, popular message by any, so if you're trying to make something up, why would you include, hey, you're a sinner, you screw up, you can't get near to God by yourself? Like, so, why so, would? When you're just in the sun one, and I've actually thought about this, sometimes mm-hmm. people may not hear from what I'm and for the lack of better terminology. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm the comment was is that, you know, with witnessing to people, they don't want to um, follow Christ because it's too much to take on. And, and it's, but it's it's like, it's the same idea. Like, well, so what, why do we follow Christ? You know, do we follow Christ for monetary gain? Do we follow Christ to have a better life? You know, it's no, we follow Christ because he is king and I have nothing else to do other than follow him. You know, it's that I'm confronted, like you said, with the fact that I'm a complete abysmal sinner and there's nothing I can do to save myself and that in recognition of who he is, I choose to follow him regardless of what that brings. And so people who go, well, that's kind of hard to do. I don't know if I want to follow that Jesus. Well, they don't, I would say they don't get it. They don't understand because it's like, one they'd probably be like, well, there's another way to God. That's probably why you know it's like, oh that I don't like that religion. That one's hard. So what's an easier one? You know, oh let's look at this one. You know, the
1: standards that are set in the scripture is a stumbling block mm-hmm. to
0: many people. Like yep. And
1: when she committed her life to the Lord, it took her a long time. She wanted to make sure that when she made that commitment, it was going to be for her life. Mm-hmm. And when I talked to her today, uh, she just shared with me what she's learned over the last 15 years and things like that of how God has worked in her life. And so it just came true that she committed her life to something that was real. Yeah. And she wasn't going to let go of
0: it. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The standard yeah. Yeah. Dude, screw up a lot. yeah. yeah, and that's and and the comment was is that they are, they can be a stumbling block. That's right, and it's you know it if you're if you're trying to make up a new religion you wouldn't sit there and put in those types of things, you know if it if it was all made up you wouldn't have done that. Um, so, but yeah, I was going to say something else, but it escaped my mind. So. Anything else? I'll get a copy of the notes to Deb so she can send or print them out or send them out. But uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you that we can survey the Scriptures, Lord, and know that they're true. We thank you for the fact that you came for us even though we're sinners, we're wretched sinners, and that we we can't do anything to cross that, that gap between us except for your Son, that the only way onto the Father is through Him. And we just thank you that we can rest in that fact. We can rest in that truth, Lord. And we thank you that you revealed yourself in a person, a discoverable person, that we can sit there and look at the evidence and compare it to other things and to itself and to sit there and go, I'm... I have belief, but my belief is rooted in the truth and in the history and all these other things that go into it, Lord. And that's just such an amazing and unique thing, and we thank you for that. And uh, we just thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.